we begin, let's spend just a few moments uh, in prayer silently. And then after you've had some time to ask the Lord to open His Word to your heart and to your mind, remove distractions, I'll pray and we'll begin our time in Scripture together. Father, we delight as your people to hear your voice in Scripture, to hear the voice of Christ, our Savior, to hear the words of truth that our soul feeds on and longs for, and the words that we rest on, that we hope in, because they point us to Christ, they point us to you, they remind us of your glory, they tell us of all that you've done in your dear Son, all that you're doing. And all that you will do in the future as we await our Lord Jesus, your return at the appointed time. We long to be with you. We also are overwhelmed and struck with the cost of our redemption that we've been considering for some weeks now as we're in Matthew 27 coming to the close of this wonderful gospel and We ask this morning as we continue to look at this amazing scene that you would give us spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, willing, submitted, believing hearts. That we might be renewed in our commitment and in our faith to live lives for your glory and hope and in joy and humility. We ask you to be with us this morning in the opening of your word. And we pray this together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Again, to Matthew chapter 27. We're moving this morning to verses 51 through 54. Matthew 27, verses 51 through 54. And as was mentioned, of course, in the prayer, and you're well familiar with, we're coming back to the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus. The cross of Christ is... Is the banner that kind of is over this whole chapter and this whole section, as we've been calling it. And there could be then no greater or more conceivably greater event in the history of the world, and there is no greater event in the history of the world, than the death of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, on the cross for His people. There's no greater reality... ...that we've been confronted with in all of the New Testament and in the Gospel of Matthew... ...that God the Eternal Son has united Himself to humanity so that He could die. So that He could offer Himself as a substitute for the sin of His people. This is truly astounding. It is something that only a Christian whose eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit, of course... ...can understand in all of its... Glory and all of its significance, and yet it's true. The man that was crucified on that cross in Jerusalem around 2,000 years ago was no mere man, that he was the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, dwelling mysteriously, unconfusedly in humanity, in the man Christ Jesus. And again, so that he could die. And it is that. Death that he came for 
It is that death that was an atoning death that we are confronted with again here in Matthew chapter 27. And Matthew records for us not only the events of his life, not only the events leading up to his crucifixion, not only the event of his crucifixion, but now as we come to verses 51 through 54, the results of his death, the results of that crucifixion, the results of his atoning sacrifice for us. And that's what we'll look at in verses 51 through 54. So we looked last or three weeks ago at the response to Jesus' death in 57 or 47 through 50, and now we'll look at the results. What did it accomplish? What was the significance of his dying? What was the testimony that God bore himself to the significance of his death? And that's what we'll look at this morning. Read with me beginning in verse 51 down to verse 54 of Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus... When they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, in each of these events, there is a physical sign. There's a, something that God did that was observable, that was able to be witnessed, that had the intention of pointing to a reality beyond the event itself, the action itself. And, of course, God often acts that way, even in the life of Christ, right? Particularly, John calls them signs. There were these things that Jesus did that were indicating far more than just somebody being healed. They were indicating that the Messiah was here. The age of the new covenant was coming. The last days were upon men. God's salvation had appeared among men. And each of the the signs that Christ did not only affirmed his person, but they brought out some nuance, some aspect of the glories of the new covenant, of what he actually came to introduce. And so it is here. These physical signs were all testimonies by God that were unique and amazing in themselves, yet designed to point beyond themselves to something else. In fact, the whole design of the temple is in the language of the writer of Hebrews, it was a shadow. The whole priesthood was a shadow. All of these things were a shadow that were pointing ahead to the substance, the substance being realized in Christ. They were all pictures of heavenly realities. And so we'll be introduced to the temple here. The tombs that were opened were a symbol of the resurrection that Christ would bring through his own resurrection, having atoned for sin and defeating death. The splitting of the rocks and the earthquake were a sign of not only the presence of God, but really the judgment that is to come upon the earth. And here the faith in verse 54 of the centurion, a picture of the gospel being opened up to the Gentiles 
the way of salvation now being offered to all men through Christ. And so here in the darkest hour, really, of human history that we've considered, that which is climaxed in the cry of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the most atrocious and violent and horrific act of rebellion that man could commit, the crucifixion of the Son of God, in fact, fulfilling sin's ultimate desire to put God to death, we have God giving this wonderful testimony, this wonderful testimony to the significance of that death, to all that He was accomplishing in His Son, to the most glorious wonders of His grace. So we're going to look at each of these, and there's four... Four results then that God is emphasizing to us in all of these events. And so we're just going to look at them one by one. We'll spend the most time on the first because in many ways it is the most significant. It's the most comprehensive of all of these events in terms of what it indicates about the work of God through the death and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we'll look at each four of these. Let's look at the first one in verse 51 and note that access to God for the sinner is opened through Christ. Access to God's presence, access to forgiveness, reconciliation with God is now opened in a unique and a wonderful and a perfect and a glorious way to all sinners. An absolutely astounding event. After Jesus cried out in verse 50, Matthew records for us in verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Of course, this is Herod's temple. The temple that stood in Jerusalem in the first century. The temple that was destroyed later in 70 AD by a judgment of God through a Roman general at that time, Titus. The temple that was later to be leveled. But here it stood as one of the great wonders and testimonies of the architecture, grand architecture of the ancient world, and particularly of the glory of the Jewish worship, Jewish identity, Jewish religious affection. And most importantly, it was for the nation of Israel and through the nation of Israel really to the world designed to be a picture of God dwelling among men, that God's presence was among men. Now the basic structure and symbolism of the temple was actually begun, as you'll remember, in the tabernacle. The tabernacle that God established through Moses after he delivered them out of the land of Egypt. The tabernacle was essentially a tent that could be taken up and moved at the movement of God and the command of God. And so it was that God gave exact instructions to Moses to build a tabernacle that would be a place or the place that God would uniquely dwell, uh, manifest his presence among his people. The tabernacle consisted of really a, a fence that went around the designed area. In the middle, in the front part of it, there was a courtyard. In that courtyard, there was a round basin full of waters later called the sea, and it was where washing and ceremonial washing took place, and of the sacrifices, there was an altar where the sacrifices were altered up by the, offered up by the priest. There was a main tabernacle building which consisted of two rooms. If you were to walk past the bronze or the altar and the bronze sea, you would move into the tabernacle, divided into two rooms. The first room was 
the holy place, and in it was a table with showbread, a lamp that was burning always, and an altar of incense that stood before a veil. And on the other side of this veil, there was another room, and this room was called the Holy of Holies. And it was in the Holy of Holies that the ark sat, and inside the ark were the Ten Commandments written on stone by the finger of God. There was Aaron's rod that budded. There was a testimony of God sustaining his people in the manna. Over this ark there were cherubim with wings touching one another. And on the top, the lid of the ark was the mercy seat where atonement for the people of Israel was made once a year by the high priest. And it was only the high priest who could enter into this holy place, this most holy place. And it was there that atonement for the sins of God's people was made. Now this tabernacle was, of course, a tent that was moved around with the people of God. Eventually, this tent was moved into the city of Jerusalem under David's reign. And then it was David's son Solomon, you remember, who built the first temple because it was a place of permanent residence. Jerusalem was the city that God had chosen and the permanent temple there under, built under Solomon was to be a manifestation of his glory among his people. That temple was eventually destroyed when God moved his people away into captivity by Babylon. Another temple, Zerubbabel's temple, was built later, completed somewhere around 515 BC. It was less glorious, but built according to the same pattern. It eventually fell into ruins. And here then, in the first century, we have Herod's temple. Glorious, glorious structure. It's said in John 2, chapter 20, that it took 46 years of construction. Now, it didn't take exactly 46 years for everything to be built. It, the main building was probably after about 10 years, but all of the extra stuff, it was continually being worked on at that point for at least 46 years. It was a glorious, glorious structure. It was massive and impressive. On the outermost courts was the court of the Gentiles. If you moved in closer to the, tent, uh, the temple, you had the court of the women. And on either corner of that, there was a court for the lepers and a court for the Nazarites. And then you moved a bit further, and it was the court of the Israelites. And then even closer to the temple, a court for the priest. And no Gentile was allowed past the area designated for them. And the idea was the holiness of God that was getting... was as you approached it, became more and more pronounced. But the main idea of the temple and the main idea of the tabernacle was this. God established it positively to remind His people and to declare to His people in the world that God had initiated to put His presence among men. That because of sin... God was separated from men. But here in the temple, God had initiated through the nation of Israel His presence among men once again. He had initiated, He had taken the first steps to bringing His presence to men. And so that was a positive sign of the temple. As a matter of fact, He says in Exodus 25.8, He puts it this way, Let them construct a sanctuary for Me, that I may dwell among them. 
that I may dwell among them. When the tabernacle was established, God's presence filled it with a cloud such that even Moses at that point in Exodus 40 could not even enter into the inside of it. When the temple was built by Solomon, it was once again filled with a cloud acknowledging the presence of God among his people. Negatively, however, the temple illustrated this, that though God had taken initiative to dwell among his people again, to dwell among men, that there was an inseparable and impassable divide between a holy God and a corrupted and a sinful people. In other words, there wasn't just a willy-nilly or an open access to his presence. No, there was a divide. There is a separation. God cannot and would not allow sinful men into his holy presence. Because for man to do so without God providing some kind of atonement could only lead to the destruction and the death of whoever would approach God. Even the high priest who entered into God's presence unworthily and unprepared as was mentioned earlier in the service in Nadab and Abihu who offered a sacrifice or who offered incense to God that was not proper and he killed them right away. Why? To show that God was not simply to be approached casually, but there he was to be approached with a sense of his great holiness and only through sacrifice. So this is the theme that really runs throughout all of the establishment of the temple, all of the orders given to it, all of the sacrifice, all of the priesthood, is the fact that God is holy and that God cannot simply be approached by sinful men without him providing a way. Now that is absolutely in contrast to the way that God is, of course, often thought of now. It's almost as if we have some right by merely being human and merely being made in God's image to approach God whenever and however we want to. And I'm talking about man in general. But that's not the case. God is separate from us because of His holiness. And the temple reminded us that in order to come into God's presence, there needed to be death and there needed to be a sacrifice. There needed to be a substitute. And so the blood that was required to enter into the presence of God and to make atonement for sin showed both the justice of God and it showed the grace of God. It showed the justice of God because it showed that there is a just recompense. There is a just penalty for all of sin and that penalty is death. It shows the grace of God because he provided the death of another, a substitute, so that his people could come near him. But the greatest and probably one of the most significant visible pictures or symbols of the separation that was between God and sinful man was this holy of holies, this room of the holy of holies, this place where the ark sat and where God's presence was uniquely shown or manifested among his people. And it's here, this veil that Matthew points us to in this chapter 51, verse 51. Now, there were, in fact, two veils in the temple. There was a large veil when you entered into the temple, of Herod's temple anyway, uh, that separated the outer court, that court where the priests were and the, the Israelites, 
from the holy place to the sanctuary. And then there was a second veil that separated the holy of holies inside the temple from the most holy place. So there were, in fact, two veils, and there is some discussion on which veil is being talked here. But I think most certainly, and is generally understood, he's referring to the veil that is inside the temple that separated the holy of holies from the, mo- or the holy place. In other words, it was that veil that separated even the normal activity of the priesthood in maintaining the bread of presence, in maintaining the candlesticks, and in maintaining the incense. There was yet another and deeper separation that existed that even those priests could not enter into except those appointed by God, those who came in by sacrifice, and that only once a year. In other words, nothing like that inner veil, nothing like that separated room of the holies of holies demonstrated the separation that existed between man and God. The separation that existed, the divide that existed between a holy God and a sinful people. And yet, here Matthew records for us that it is That veil in the temple that was torn in two from top to bottom after the cry of Jesus in which he gave up his spirit. It is a tearing of this veil that marked a new age. A new way that God would deal with men through Christ. It marked new access into his presence. Where there was separation, what is being emphasized is now there is an openness. There is access to God. There is here a sign of judgment as well as mercy. The tearing of the veil also communicates to us and to particularly to the Jews of that time... That their way of relating to God before, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple, that was done. Everything that they had put their hope in, that was, that was done. God was moving on to a new way to approach him. And in fact, just to make that point more clear, he would destroy the temple, as it was mentioned in 70 A.D., Because they, as the Jewish nation, would miss the significance of these events, the significance of the death of Christ. And so God would put an exclamation point, as it were, and did more than just tear the veil, but he also completely destroyed the old system so that it could no longer, no longer be the way that his people would think that God was approachable. No, he is showing that that is now accomplished only in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the meaning of all of this? Well, actually, Scripture gives us the meaning in Hebrews chapter 9. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read just a few verses. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews tells us the significance of these events. He says, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read a little bit of a longer section here, so just listen. But essentially what Hebrews is, and in this, this section in verse 9 is a sermon in and of itself on the significance of these events. And so the writer there tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly ministry. Actually, go up. you can go back up to verse 13. He says, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. 
That's speaking of the coming judgment that's to come on the temple at all when God destroys it. But then he says in verse, chapter 9, verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship, the earthly sanctuary, there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which there were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. We mentioned that. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. That's the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priest continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Again, the point is, is that while that stood, the, the implication, the, the indication, the point being made is that access into God's presence had not yet fully been provided. That there was still a separation, there was still something to come that was even greater. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, that is, ceremoniously, when done by faith, symbolize the cleansing that did allow Forgiveness of sin. How much more in verse 13 will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And this is the last verse 15. For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. That's the glory of it. Look at verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is the significance of this veil being torn? And what is the significance of it for us? It is this. That though you and I are dirty and are unclean sinners. Though you and I have only the burden of our sin that weighs on us. Though you and I would have no access to God and would have only fear from Him. He has removed all of that in Christ. That Christ has atoned for our sin. He's affirming essentially that the death of Christ satisfied all that God requires from us, from sinners. 
who believe in his son, that he has fully met it, his righteousness is fully satisfied, his son has been given, the atonement has been made, and now through his son we have access to God. Do you think of that when you pray? Spurgeon said a long time ago, I'm going to paraphrase, I may not get it exactly right, but he said he never comes to God without taking Christ with him. He never comes into the presence of the Father without taking Christ with him. And that's essentially in part what's being illustrated here. That in Christ, through Christ, because of his death, we have access to the Father. Jesus put it this way in John 10. We go in and out of pasture. We have ready and free access to the presence of God. We have a way inaugurated for us that we have the ear of the Father, that we have His goodwill and His love in His Son towards us. The veil that separated us has been removed. There's no need to come to God through a priest, through a special ceremony, through a ritual, through some kind of preparing yourself that God has made it free and open access to Christ. We don't come through the church The Catholic Church, we don't come through any other means. We come freely and openly and completely and abundantly to the presence of God through Christ. This is an epic changing event. It is a movement from the old covenant and the way God dealt with men to the new covenant, which is access to him, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation through Christ. It's a way to show that The way is open to all who believe, all who come through Christ. This is absolutely amazing. We don't offer up sacrifices anymore. We don't have the the daily burden that was on the people of God, even ceremonially through the Mosaic Covenant. We now have all of that removed because it's all fulfilled in Christ. And we then as sinners have ready access into the presence of God. And I think, and I mentioned Spurgeon, that for, for me, at one level, that's always impressed upon the heart in the moment of prayer. In the moment of prayer. There is the reminder that I have this great privilege, you have this privilege as the people of God who know him, to actually pray with confidence that God hears us as a good and a loving father only and completely and exclusively because we come in Christ by faith in his son through the atonement that he has made. Glorious. This is absolutely glorious. And this is the first first and most comprehensive picture and sign that God himself is oppressing upon us through the death of Christ. The veil of the temple was torn. The way the separation between God and sinners is removed. The way into his presence has been opened to all. Look secondly at a second event that took place. And that is that the earth shook and the rocks were split. And here then is a portent of God's judgment against sin. An astounding scene. You can only imagine, like we read this and we read on. Put yourself in the place of these people who were at the foot of the cross. It's not something they were reading about. It's something that they felt. They felt the earth shake under them. They heard the the sounds of the rocks splitting. 
they heard the events around them, they felt them, and they were overwhelmed by it. In fact, when I first moved to California, it was within a few months is when they had the Northridge earthquake. And the building that I was in was actually destroyed. Uh, It was one of the second epicenters, they said, of the earthquake. And then afterwards, I remember all of the aftershocks were pretty large and being in a uh, uh, up several floors on some of the aftershocks and feeling the building go like this as it shook. And it's a, it's a pretty humbling experience. It gets your attention. You're just, you're just totally submitted to whatever's going to happen. There's nothing that you can do. Earthquakes are designed to remind us of the power of God. And here the earth shook in such a violent way, in such a dramatic way that even the rocks around them were split. They burst open, as it were, all in connection with Christ crying out and giving up His Spirit. In other words, with the death of Christ. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us how much time elapsed from Jesus giving up his spirit and crying out with a loud cry and the earthquake and the splitting of the rocks. But the implication is, is that it was immediate and that those who were there witnessing made that connection very easily and very clearly. In other words, these were people who were not standing at a distance, but this was the centurion and other soldiers around who were right very near to Christ, could reach out and touch him. And they heard very personally and very nearly Christ cry out and hear his words at the the moment of his death, bow his head, give up his spirit, and immediately all of these events started taking place. And it was overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming and awe-inspiring. The earth shook. Possibly even some of these rocks that were splitting were maybe even large enough to have broken off and rolled down a hill and called other damage. And you could just imagine the scene, the scene of, of chaos and fear for all of those who were there. What does all that mean? Well, there's one thing that absolutely would have been impressed upon the mind of these Roman soldiers and anyone else who was seeing this, these events take place. And that is the idea of divine judgment. Of divine judgment. An earthquake is a consequence of the fall. There, was no, there were no earthquakes in the Garden of Eden. But there are earthquakes now. The world and the earth under the curse of sin. As Paul said, groaning under the weight and the burden of sin in Romans 8. And looking forward to its release into the freedom and the glory of the sons of God. The earth moans under the weight of sin, and earthquakes are a reminder of that. And there's only one thing that earthquakes accomplish. Destruction. That's it. There's nothing growing. There's nothing that's built. There's nothing positive that comes out of an earthquake. The only thing that comes from it is destruction. And that's what they would have been thinking as they hear the sounds, as they see the rocks splitting, as they're feeling the earth shake. They would have had the sense of judgment, of divine judgment. And also, a sense even and associated with Christ of the presence of God. The awesome and the majestic and the holy presence of God. And you're reminded in these events of Mount Sinai. You remember when God's presence, he was impressing upon his people when he appeared on the mountain with the the smoke and the lightning and all of these things. 
and the earth shook, and the people were so afraid around the mountain because of all of these events taking place that they, they didn't even want to come near, and they didn't even want to speak to God. They asked Moses to go to God for them because they were so full of fear, and God was impressing upon them the majestic and the holy nature of his presence. And so that is a part of it here. That, they want, that God is impressing that the one on the cross is not merely a man. That his death is not merely the death of a man. That something significant is going on here. Something associated with the presence and the glory of God. But most frequently in scripture, earthquakes and the shaking of the earth are associated with one thing. The judgment of God against the sin of man. The judgment of God against the sin of man. The earthquakes are designed by God not only to destroy, but to put fear into the heart of those who would reject his salvation. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 29, warning against the sin of Jerusalem. He says, from the Lord of hosts, verse 6, you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest, and the flame of a consuming fire. In other words, the earthquake is going to show the movement of God and the movement of God not for salvation, but in that case, for destruction. For destruction. It is a picture then of God's judgment upon the earth. How is it then that a picture of salvation is laid next to such a picture of judgment? Well, because while the way is opened for all men to come to God through Christ, there's also the reminder that outside of Christ, there is no salvation. There is no salvation. There is both the warning and a promise. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says again in chapter 12. He says, actually beginning in verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. In other words, there is... The opportunity for salvation and there's also the warning of judgment. This is throughout scripture again. Not only in the Old Testament. You'll remember that one of the marks of the tribulation period is that there will be earthquakes. There will be famines. When he destroys the great city of Babylon where the harlot lives. There was going to be a great earthquake that brings that city to ruins. And here, at the death of Christ, there is this tremendous impact about the nature of Christ there, that this was no man who died, but his death was of such significance that it caused utter turmoil in the earth. And there is a reminder then to say, consider the one who was there who died. Consider the one who was there who died. God's judgment of sin at the cross, laying upon the sinless son, the the weight and the burden and the guilt of his, the sin of his people. A demonstration here of love, but also of judgment. And so it's a warning for all men to seek, seek Christ. There is a third way, thing that Christ is, or God is emphasizing here. First is that the way has been opened to his presence 
through the death of Christ, that it was no mere man but a testimony to the glorious nature of Christ and a warning of the judgment of God for all who reject it. Third, there is this, a witness to the significance of Jesus' death is given in the resurrection. Look at what he says in verse 52. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city, and they appeared to many. I mean, this is just one amazing event after another, one astounding event after another. You can, again, imagine the overwhelming nature of these things as they were witnessed. Now, it's possible here that these tombs being opened are in conjunction with the earth being shaken with the, with the earthquake. In any other case, all of these events are happening by God's hand. That's the emphasis throughout. These saints who were released from the grave are Old Testament believers who had died under the Old Covenant. Now, there's a lot of mystery here. There's more questions than there are answers, frankly. Matthew doesn't tell us who they were. Some suggest that they were known martyrs or heroes of the Old Testament, but that's a guess. Very possible. All we know is that they were those who had died having known the forgiveness of God through faith because they are called here saints. He doesn't tell us how long they have been in the grave. Are they those who had died a week ago, a day ago, three years ago, a decade ago, a thousand years ago, 500 years ago? He doesn't tell us any of that. Merely that these who are those who died under the old covenant who knew God by faith. Who knew God by faith. He doesn't tell us how many there were. But he does say there were many. There were many. He says many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, were raised. Fallen asleep, of course, meaning those who were, were dead. That's the way that God describes the death of believers. Matthew also doesn't tell us exactly what their message was when they went into the holy city, when they went into Jerusalem. However, it can be safely assumed, I believe, that they were sent into the holy city to be a witness to the work of Christ, to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, that they did not enter into the city until after Christ was raised. Until after he was raised. Now there's two points that need to be observed there. Let me just mention them briefly. The first is this. That little phrase, after Jesus was raised, could mean a couple of things. It could mean that they were not raised until after Jesus rose... And so then after Jesus rose, these were also raised out of their graves. And once they were raised out of their graves, they went into the holy city to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It could also mean that they were raised right at Jesus' death when Jesus died, but they did not enter the city until after Jesus was raised, so that there was some kind of time period between when they were raised and when they entered the city. I think most likely... He's referring here to their being raised after Jesus was raised and then being into the, going into the city. But in either case, it doesn't really matter. The material point is this, is that they were raised and they were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection after he was raised from the dead. The second observation is this, that the resurrection is probably to be compared with, those, with one like Lazarus. One like Lazarus. And they, not the final resurrection body. Now there's most who take this, frankly, as being raised in glorified bodies. 
in receiving the first fruits after Christ of the promise of the resurrection. So glorified bodies, and then they went into the city, and they were there for a little while, and then they were taken up again. And that certainly is possible. There's no way that you can uh, deny that that was the case. But I think more likely that these were those who were raised with a body similar to that of Lazarus. Let me give you at least a couple of reasons for that. One is that the resurrection body of the saints that they will receive at the end of the age, as described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is of such a glorious nature and such a wonderful nature that it's very unlikely that they would have had the same kind of effect or that it would be less known if these entered in great numbers into Jerusalem in this glorified body that it would go as unnoticed as it seems to have to the population in general. Number two, the final resurrection of the saints with their new bodies is specifically said to take place at the return of Christ. And it's better to wait for that particular body, that particular eternal body, that particular body fit for the new heavens and the new earth, for the millennial kingdom to be reserved for that time at the return of Christ. Now, that brings up the question then, Did these people just come out of the grave and did they just live a normal life and then eventually die and then go back up to the presence of God in heaven where they were before they came back? Or did they just minister for a period of time and then were they taken back up? Again, you can't be exact here because Matthew doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us those details. But I think in all likelihood, they were raised... They went into the city. They bore testimony to the resurrection of Christ and the significance of his death. Not unlike Jesus did to the disciples on the road of Emmaus. That they were his messengers, his witnesses to his resurrection. And that after they finished their witness, they were taken back up to heaven much like Enoch and Elijah were. But again, in either case, it doesn't really matter some of those details. The important thing is, is that they were raised, that they bore witness to Christ, and that they are a testimony to the resurrection of all at the end of the age. That's the important point. The resurrection is central to the gospel, absolutely central to the gospel. You remember well Paul's words when he said in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, not even Christ was raised from the dead. And if not even Christ was raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. There is no salvation. We're still in our sins. And Christians are of all people on the face of this earth to be pitied, to be pitied. The resurrection is absolutely central to our hope. It's not only that Jesus says it is finished Because yes, the atonement was completed then, but it was the resurrection of the dead that affirmed the true nature of Christ as the Son of God to all men. It was the resurrection of the dead that affirmed that there would be a future resurrection for all who were in Christ. And it was the resurrection of the dead that declared to all men that the Father had accepted the sacrifice of the Son and that alone was the sacrifice that he accepted. In other words, in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, every promise of God, verse 20 says, For as many as are the promises of God in him in Christ, they are yes, therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through Christ. 
In other words, Jesus being resurrected from the dead is the substance and the essence of this certainty of every promise of God to his people forever. If he weren't raised from the dead, then the promises of God would essentially be empty and vain. Every confidence of God's people would essentially be empty and vain. It would have no substance. But in the resurrection of Christ, everything that God promised about redemption, about a kingdom, about forgiveness, about his return, about a new world, a new heavens and new earth, about righteousness, all of these things that we, if we know him, we trust in and are certain in, are accomplished only, or we have as certain, only because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the fact that these saints, whoever they were, however many they were, whether they were glorified bodies or not, the significance of it is, is that it is a testimony that as Jesus was raised from the dead, so he will raise his people from the dead. That is our hope. It's this reality that gives us confidence that our sins have truly been forgiven. It's this reality of Christ that gives us confidence when we read Scripture that the Word of God is unbreakable and certain and every promise is going to be fulfilled. It is the resurrection of the dead that gives you and I, if we are Christians, the certainty that no matter what we sacrifice for in service to Christ in this world, that it will receive a just reward from our faithful God. It gives us confidence that whatever we suffer in this world because of our testimony of Christ, that it is only temporary. It gives us perspective on this world to remind us that whatever pleasure or pain we experience as a part of this world, that it is only temporary, that our eternal joy, our full joy, our lasting joy, and our lasting hope is in the world to come, not in this world, both in its pleasures and its disappointments. It's because of the resurrection of the dead that our trials don't overwhelm us and send us into a hopeless case of despair because as bad as it may be it's only for a period of time and God is working in it the resurrection is actually is absolutely central to our hope and God here stamps that with emphasis by these bodies coming out of the tomb bearing witness to Christ saying in fact that he did rise who did he appear to who did they appear to Well, he most certainly appeared to believers, and I would hold most likely he appeared to those who had believed during the earthly ministry of Christ. Those who had exercised a faith in Christ as maybe ignorant of all the fullness as it would later be revealed, that he went and he appeared to them and declared to them that he had died, that his atonement has been made, and that the resurrection was certain because he had been raised. So he went to his people. He sent out these messengers, as it were, from the dead to his people, to those who had believed, to declare to them the glory and the significance and the importance of the death of Jesus Christ. And this was, again, yet another testimony that the man who died there and the death that he died was of eternal significance, eternal significance, 
that that was the Son, and that the sacrifice of the Son was a complete atonement for sin for those who believe. And this then is the last point. Not only did it declare that the way to God's presence had been opened through the tearing of the veil, that it was the Son of God who died, and to reject Him is to bring judgment in the earthquake, that there is the certainty that he rose from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, his sacrifice accepted, his people will rise from the dead again in that final day. It also points us to the fact in the verse 54 that his death and his resurrection is the hope and the only hope of all who would believe in him, that faith in the person and the work of Christ is engendered. Read verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Truly this was the Son of God. And this really is the ultimate end of it all. That faith would be created in Christ. Now when he says they saw all of these things, he's most likely referring to the earthquake and the rock splitting. Remember, they were at the cross. They wouldn't have seen the veil that was torn in the temple. And most likely, these people were raised, these saints, after the resurrection of Christ. So that was still sometime in the future. But when they saw all of these things, like him crying out on the cross, when they saw with that cry the the beginning of these events of the earth shaking and the rock splitting, they saw all these things and they were filled with fear. They were filled with fear. In either case, whatever all of the events are that he's referring to, but it's pretty clear what I just mentioned, that they were overwhelmed with the glory of Christ's person. They were, at the very least, at the very minimal amount, they were aware of this fact, that the one who died on the cross was no mere man. He certainly was not a criminal. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us that the centurion cried out as well. It was said, he was a righteous man. They understood that they had taken part in some way in the death of an innocent. And not merely the death of an innocent man, but the death of an innocent man who was more than a man. And in somehow his death came with these violent undescribable or undeniable testimonies from God. They at least understood that much. They at least were aware of that, that this was no mere man and that he was innocent and that they had taken part somehow in his wrongful death. And with the idea of judgment lingering around in their mind at some level too because of the shaking and because of the earthquake, you can imagine how very likely their conscience was struck, struck too about their condition and the state that they were in and what this all might apply or imply about them and their condition. This, in fact, may be the first instance, I think, possibly, of Jesus' words in John chapter 12, and he said this. He said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, then I will draw all men to myself. And here he is lifted up from the earth, which is what he's referring to. There, lifted up from the earth on the cross, ultimately lifted up in his ascension back to the Father. But here, lifted up from the earth on the cross, that he is in that drawing all men to himself. 
There is an anticipation here, even of the words that he'll give his disciples in chapter 28, that they are to go into all of the nations and make disciples. In other words, all of these events are bearing testimony to the work of God in his Son and calling men to faith, to believe. And there's a striking contrast here between the testimony of the centurion and possibly some of those with him who's declaring that truly this was the Son of God in some measure of faith, I'll mention in just a moment, but it stands in striking contrast to the, that same phrase used in a mocking sense by the Jewish leaders and those who should have trusted in him above all men and worshipped him. But while they are mocking, here is this Gentile, this centurion, this Roman soldier, who is acknowledging more about the Jewish Messiah than the Jews themselves were willing to acknowledge. Now obviously, in this statement... The centurion and any of those with him did not understand all of the significance that would later be clarified and revealed after the coming of the Spirit, after the ministry of the apostles, after the writing of the New Testament, understanding that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity, the incarnation, the fullness of his atonement, the resurrection, all of those things that would be understood with clarity later. He didn't understand that. And some think he may have meant this no more than that he was a divine being as a, as a pagan Roman. That they had some sense of divinity and divine beings and that maybe they were saying that. But that's not the impression that Matthew leaves with us. And it certainly isn't in keeping in flow with his own testimony in the gospel to the true nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Though with less information and less understanding, it's not unlike, I think, in the same vein as Peter's own testimony that truly he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. There is something about Him that is divine and significant. He he actually probably knew less than the thief on the cross. But I personally am convinced that this was the seed and expression of a genuine faith. And that what later was to be revealed about the person of Christ, when this Roman centurion heard it, that he believed. That he received the message. And that he actually trusted in him. And it's an interesting fact, just as a side note to that, that scripture uniformly, almost uniformly, I can't think of an exception off the top of my head, presents centurions as a general class of men as men of integrity, as men of character. But even more than that, in the Gospel of Matthew, if you remember in chapter 8, it was a centurion who expressed such great faith that he said Jesus did to the Jews around him that he had not found such great faith in Israel. And truly, I tell you, they will come from the east and the west and they will dine at Abraham's table, but the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, will be cast out for their unbelief. And he did that through a centurion. It's interesting that it's through a centurion, Cornelius, that at the entrance of the gospel to the Gentile nations, affirmed through the ministry of Peter in Acts chapter 10, that it was to a centurion that God sent the apostle Peter to declare the truth about Christ, and he and his whole household believed. I think there's a part where God's doing that here. That this is a genuine faith. Yes, it's ignorant of much that he would have to understand later, Yes, it didn't have all of the content that would later be revealed, but it was certainly a true faith that understand this death was significant. 
And very likely, it's possible that he did even understand this in a Jewish sense. They were not unaware of the Jewish teaching about a Messiah. It's possible even that he had some, in some way or some interaction as with the God-fearing Gentiles, as Cornelius was. Who knows? Who knows? But Matthew presents this here, I believe, as a sincere testimony of a testimony about the one who was on the cross. About the one who was on the cross. And in either case, we as the readers of Scripture know, especially us now, the fullness of that testimony, how true it really is. Who was on the cross? It was the Son of God. How else can God affirm this to us and to them, even though they were so blind to see it? And you're just amazed at how they could be so blind to see it, but such is the nature of sin. We could ask the same thing about ourselves before we came to Christ. How could we be so blind to not see what to us is oh now is so clear and so evident? But God is bearing this overwhelming testimony to the significance of the death of Christ. The way to God has been open. Atonement for your sin. Atonement for my sin has been made. Not partially, but completely. Not possibly, but absolutely. There's nothing more to be paid for our guilt and our sin and our condemnation before God because Christ bore it completely and fully in himself. So that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you feel the burden and the weight of your sin. When you fail miserably and your guilt and your shame before God is impressed upon your heart and on your emotions. So that you're ashamed even to go to God. It is this truth that he's bearing witness to. That that's who we are. But Christ has made a way. God has made a way through the Son. To enter into his presence. And it is an access to the presence of God. That is always and completely open to those who are in his son. And to everyone. No matter how much sin has characterized your life. No matter how much rebellion. If you are still outside of Christ. No matter how much disdain for the truth of God. That has been manifest through a failure to trust him. And obey him. And follow him. Forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is available through the atonement of Christ. It is a reminder that this world is passing and judgment is to come and that all we see is going to be removed and those alone will be spared who are in Christ, who have no judgment of God to receive but only the hope and certainty of His promises. It is a reminder to us that the resurrection is the central reality that we hope in and that we look to that is guaranteed for us and affirmed in the resurrection of Christ and that we live with the certainty of that hope, the guarantee of all of the promises of God in in Christ. And it is a reminder to us that in God accomplishing His salvation and the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He will apply that death to all who are His And that we can be faithful with the gospel in declaring these truths, knowing that his word will not return void without accomplishing all that he has intended for it to accomplish. So if you know Christ, then you have access into the presence of God. 
If you know Christ, you have been spared from the judgment of God and you worship Him who died on the cross for you. If you know Christ, then you have a certainty of the resurrection and we are to meditate on that and live in light of our redemption and the hope that's coming. And we can thank God for the faith that He's given. And those outside of Christ, here represented by the Jews, then there is the reminder that the time of mercy will come to an end and all will give an account to God and His salvation in Christ, their response to it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this testimony against Christ or of Christ. Help us to meditate much on it. Help us to receive. Receive from all of the glorious realities of Christ and His atonement and His resurrection the truths that feed our hearts, delight our souls, enlighten our minds, Holy Spirit, cause us to hunger and pursue ever more deeply the truths of Scripture that we might be strengthened and grow in our faith and enlighten the eyes of those who are here who are yet in darkness that you might show them these glories and create in them faith that is unto life. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. I think Paul is going to close us.